Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today is part two of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 11. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Jeremiah 5. Here are this, so foolish, senseless people who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Ezekiel 12, 2. Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see but see not, who have ears to hear but hear not. Isaiah, who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I sent, who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord. He sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open but he does not hear. Paul will tell the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 3, that their minds were hardened to this day. When they read the Old Covenant, he's talking about the Jews, many of the Jews, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ can that veil be taken away. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the likeness of God. So Paul has appealed to the prophet Elijah. Now, Paul is going to make an appeal to King David. And you have to know the scriptures, the Old Testament Jewish Hebrew scriptures. Jesus too appealed to prophets and kings to get his disciples to understand. We had it just this week at daily mass. Jesus privately turned to his disciples and said, blessed are the eyes which see what you guys see, you 12 around me. For I tell you that many prophets like Elijah and kings like David desire to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. That's Luke 10. Paul has appealed to the prophet Elijah. Paul is now appealing to King David in Romans 11 when he says, and David says, let their feast become a snare and a trap and a pitfall and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. What is Paul possibly saying here? Well, he's quoting Psalm 69. Let their own table become for them a snare. Let their sacrificial feast be a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. What? What is this about? We don't know unless we have context. David, when he writes and sings Psalm Psalm 69, he's referring to 1 Samuel 25. All you good Catholics know what 1 Samuel 25 is about, right? I had to look it up and study it, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's about David and the wife of Nabal. Nabal means in Hebrew, fool, fool. David is fleeing from King Saul, who wants David dead. Does that sound familiar? Jezebel wanted Elijah dead. Now King Saul wants David dead. Saul is very jealous of David, and David must flee for his life. David and his men go to the wilderness of Paran. And there at Carmel, same place Elijah was, they meet a man. He was very, very rich. He had 3,000 sheep, 3,000 goats. He was shearing sheep in Carmel. And the name of the man was Nabal, which means fool. The name of his wife was Abigail. Abigail, And the woman, Abigail, was of good understanding and she was beautiful. Very few times in scripture does it tell us of a beautiful woman. Abigail's one of the, the rare ones. But 
The man, her husband, the fool, Nabal, was churlish. He was ill-behaved and he was a Calebite, which means dog. Churlish, I looked it up, means rude in a very mean-spirited, surly way. Now, David was heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing sheep. So David sent 10 men to go to Carmel to greet Nabal by name, to tell him, peace, be with, be, be with your house. I, I have heard you have shearers. Your shepherds have been with us. We didn't harm them. They've, they're missing nothing. All the time you were away in Carmel shearing your sheep, we've protected your flocks, your other 3,000. Ask the young men, they'll tell you. Therefore, my young men, if we find favor in your, eye, your eyes, we know we've come on a feast day. Please give us anything you can, whatever provisions. David needs provisions. He knows it's a feast. He knows this guy's rich. There's plenty of food. They've given his shepherds protection. The David's young men come to Nabal. They say they've come in the name of David. They wait. And Nabal says to them, who is David? Who's the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shearers and give it to these men? I don't know where they've come from. I don't know who they are. Now that is not Middle Eastern hospitality. He is denying David provisions. David was so upset. David's young men turn away. They come back. They tell David. David says, every man gird your sword. Every man girded his sword. He has 400 men and he wants to go and take revenge on Nabal. One of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, and behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to salute our master Nabal, and he railed at them. The men were very good to us. We suffered no harm. We didn't miss anything. They protected us in the fields. They were a wall for us of protection. They kept our sheep alive. And therefore, know this, consider what you should do, because the evil is determined against Nabal, our master, and against this house. He's so ill-natured, no one can speak to him, to Nabal. So Abigail was quick on her feet, and she thought what she should do. And she quickly, in haste, took, made 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep dressed, five measures of parched grain, hundred clusters of raisins, 200 cakes. She laid them out on donkeys, on asses, and she herself took them to David alone. And she bowed down before David. She rode and, and David and his men came down to, and she met them. And she was beautiful and she was wise and her name was Abigail. And she bowed down before David. Surely, in vain, I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness. Nothing was missed. He has returned to me evil for good, David said to her. God, I, I leave so much as one, and God do so to David, and more also, if by the morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. So David is premeditating to obliterate the whole household of Nabal. He's going to kill them all because they wouldn't give him provisions. Does this sound familiar? David now is sounding like Jezebel. He's full of rage. He's full of anger because he was treated what he perceives to be unjustly by the fool Nabal. David in anger wants Nabal dead. Deadly sin of anger would not bode well for this future king of Israel. This blood guilt, if he takes vengeance on himself, God will not honor that. So God places beautiful Abigail in David's path to save him. When Abigail saw David, she made haste. She alighted from her ass. She fell down before David on her face. She bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet. And she said, upon me alone, my Lord David, be the guilt. Pray, let your handmaid speak in your ear the, the, and hear the words of your handmaid. Beautiful, wise Abigail is keeping David from having lots of blood guilt on his hands. Let not my Lord regard this ill-natured fellow Nabal. This is his name as he is, fool. 
Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your handmaid, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. And now, my Lord, as your Lord lives, and as your soul lives, seeing the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from taking vengeance with your own hand, let the enemies of those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present which your servant has brought to you, my Lord, be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Pray forgive the trespass of your handmaiden, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord of Israel, and evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. She says at the end there, the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. She's heard about David's fight with with Goliath, with the sling. She knows he's a big deal. He's a prince of Israel. And, and she says, when the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you as prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief. You'll have no pangs for having shed blood without cause for my Lord taking vengeance himself. She doesn't want David to take vengeance of anger in his own hands and have all that blood guilt on his hands. And when the Lord has dealt well with you, my Lord David, then remember your handmaid. David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord and the God of Israel who sent you to me this day. Blessed be your discretion. Blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had made haste and come to meet me, truly by morning there would have not been left anyone to Nabal, not even one male. And David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said, go in peace to your house. See, I have hearkened to your voice. I have granted your petition. Now, Abigail comes back to her husband, Nabal. He was holding a big feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him. He was very, very drunk. And she told him nothing at all until the morning light. And in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, the fool, his wife, Abigail, told him these things. And his heart died within him. And he became as a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord God of Ismael smote Nabal dead and he died. And David heard that Nabal was dead and he said, blessed be the Lord God who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from evil. So because of Abigail, vengeance is the Lord's. And we hear this a lot. We're going to hear it in Romans 12 again. So that's why I had to relay this story to you because David has this story going through his mind. David then sent and wooed Abigail and she became his wife, one of his seven wives named in the Bible. So in Romans 11, Paul appealed first to Elijah and then to David. Both Elijah and David, both accounts are both men running for their lives from kings of their own nation, from kings of Israel. Elijah ran from Israel's King Ahab and David ran from King Saul, the first king of Israel. Paul too must run from the Israelites. They want him dead. Many want Paul dead as he relays in 2 Corinthians 11. I've been in danger from my fellow Jews. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. I was pelted with stones. Paul can relate to the kings and the prophets of Israel who Israel itself wanted them killed, wanted them dead. Oh yes. And one more king and prophet they wanted dead, Jesus Christ. And Paul knows they missed it. They missed 
Jesus Christ as Messiah, as anointed one. He himself stood over the stoning of Stephen the martyr. He himself laid waste the church, dragging off men and women to prison. Paul breathed threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord. He got letters from the synagogues in Damascus to bring them back, bound in chains, back to Jerusalem. Paul knows they missed the Messiah because he himself had missed the Messiah. Jewish Peter also knew they had not recognized Jesus Christ as Lord and Messiah. He'll say it several times how you Jews crucified and killed Jesus. He says it in Acts 2. Let all the house of Israel therefore know assuredly that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. You delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. You denied the Holy Righteous One and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. He's talking about Barabbas. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. We are all witnesses of this. This Jesus Christ of Nazareth who you crucified. Peter knows this was a Jewish brethren of theirs. Peter was the very first apostle to recognize Jesus as Messiah. Way back in Matthew 16, when he said, you are Christ, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father in heaven did. Now Saul sees, he sees when he's blinded by the light of Christ. How long will you go limping between two opinions? Is this Jesus the Jewish Messiah or is it not? Is he Lord or is he not? Is he king or is he not? What can they do when they finally do recognize it? Peter says you can repent. You can repent. You can repent that you didn't recognize him. You can repent that you didn't believe. You can repent and be baptized, every one of you in his name, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. His promise is for you, it's for your children, it's for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. Could they have missed their own Messiah? Yes. Paul is telling the Jews, you missed your own Messiah. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? What about today? The Catholic Church. The Catholic Church claims to have the fullness of the truth. And do people still miss the truth today? Yes. We have 2020 vision. We have our own Bibles in our own hands, and we miss the truth all the time. We have to seek it. We have to study it. We have to know Jesus, the truth. Paul goes on in Romans 11, so I ask. Have they stumbled so as to fall? By no means. But through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. This is how the Gentiles were included in the worldwide mission promised to Abraham. Through you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Even the Gentiles, any person who is not a Jew, a goyim, a goy, if their trespass, the unbelieving Jews, means riches for the world. And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles. How much more will their full inclusion mean? I'm speaking to you Gentiles in as much as I'm speaking, as, as much as I, Paul, now am an apostle to the Gentiles. I, Paul, magnify my ministry in order to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Paul is using a type of reverse psychology there. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? Life from the dead. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, that's the Jews. So the whole lump is holy. The whole lump is holy. Those could be Jewish loaves taken. Those could be Christian loaves. They could be either or, but the whole lump is holy. Then he goes into this wonderful analogy with the olive tree. But first you must 
understand a little bit about olive botany. So olive botany 101, the olive tree is one of the seven species of Israel. In Deuteronomy 8, the Lord tells them he's sending them to a land where there will be seven species prevalent. And one of them is a land of olive trees. Olives were the backbone in Palestinian agriculture. And you see as you're driving, you'll see people harvesting olives in the Holy Land. It's a beautiful sight. It's estimated that there are 800 million olive trees worldwide. 93% grow in the Mediterranean region. Israel has 52,500 acres of olive plantations. There are cultivated and wild olives. This is a picture of a wild olive that's just growing near Galilee. This is a wild olive tree. People will still harvest the fruit from these, just uh, especially the poor. But there are also cultivated olive orchards. The beautiful evergreen perennial olive trees. The leaves are always green, silvery green leaves that don't shed. They don't fall off the tree. This is why in the Babylonian Talmud, the rabbi says, why is Israel said to be like the olive tree? To tell you that even as the leaves of an olive tree fall neither during the summer nor during the rainy season, so Israel will never cease to be, not in this world, nor in the hereafter. The distinctive roots that spread far and anchored the tree very well and the beautiful, beautiful olive fruit ready to be crushed, ready to be pressed. Pressed means that the olives are crushed in a mill to extract the precious oil, the oil that would anoint priests and kings, the oil that would soothe the sheep when they scratched on a rock, the oil that they would dip their bread into and, and, and use in beautiful Mediterranean cooking. Olive trees have always served Israel and have been reported to live long lives, maybe some as old as 1,800 years. This one in Greece, 4,000 years old. Pruning the branches is essential to promote growth and good fruit bearing. Old broken, diseased branches have to be removed. The sun has to be able, the sunlight has to be able to penetrate the center of the tree. You see all the trimmed off branches there at the bottom. Olive plants from a seed take a very long time to bear fruit, four to seven years. So olive farmers prefer often to use grafts to achieve a uniform quality and high yield quantity fruit. The rootstock is the lower part of the tree that's already been well established, well rooted, and the newly grafted branch branch becomes part of the upper part of the tree that determines the fruit. The cultivated tree stays exactly the same other than being cut to accept, to receive the graft. It's the graft that changes. The graft will never become exactly like the natural branch, but the fruit won't ever look or taste exactly the same as the fruit that the host tree originally produced. It's going to change a little. The wild fruit is not abundant. It's not very large. So grafting is a good thing. Grafting changes and within a few years, the grafted branch produces fruit that's far superior to the wild fruit. And the grafted branches accept the nourishment from the cultivated host. They graft it cambium to cambium so the xylem and phloem can flow into the new branches. It changes it. It makes it flourish. It'll never be exactly the same, but it's part of the tree. But the natural branches, it's a beautiful thing. Okay, so Paul's using this analogy. He says, if the root is holy, so are the branches. So the Jewish root and the Jewish natural branches of the cultivated olive tree. But if some of those Jewish branches were broken off, and you, a wild Gentile olive shoot, were grafted into their place to share the richness of the olive tree, do not boast over the branches. If you do boast... 
Gentiles. If you do boast, remember, it is not you that support the root. It's the root, the Jewishness that supports you. So Hebrew scripture is the root of our Catholic faith. And I like this, the Old Testament informs the New Testament. It's the root. And the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. Catholics were wild branches grafted into their place, the broken natural branches that didn't believe to share the richness of the Jewish olive tree roots that were firmly established. St. Paul understood this. He made headlines in 1986 when he was the first pope to visit the Roman main Jewish synagogue and declare that Jews were the elder brothers of the Christian faith. And in 214, Pope Francis told an interviewer that inside every Christian is a, is, is a Jew. Pope Francis said, every day I pray with the Psalms of David, my prayer is Jewish. And then I have Eucharist, which is Christian. So the Old Testament... The Jewish roots of the olive tree inform our interpretation of the New Testament. Catholics were wild branches grafted into broken branched Jewish roots. If you say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast only through faith. Do not become proud, but stand in awe. Stand in awe of what God has done, how he has brought these two sons of Abraham together. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. There's no guarantees. He's talking about the kindness and the severity of God. I see that similar to the mercy and the judgment of God. And look at this icon of Jesus Christ, and his faces are different. Each half of his face is different. Let me show you. There's a side that has kindness or mercy, and there's a side that has severity or judgment. So this is what Paul is saying. It's not a one and done. Stand in awe, stand in gratefulness, stand in gratitude. You must continue in God's kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. Even the others, the others, the Jews, if they do not persist in their unbelief, they will be grafted back in. For God has the power to graft them in again. Remember, Paul told us, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion, says God. He can do what he wants. And Paul goes on, if you have been cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, a Gentile tree, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, the Jewish roots, how much more will these natural branches, the Jewish branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree, the original Jewish roots. Lest you be wise in your conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, my brethren. A hardening has come upon part of Israel. Paul understands that hardening because he was one of them. A hardening had come upon Saul. In fact, before he was baptized and scales had to be removed from his eyes. He had eyes, but he couldn't see. A hardening has come upon Israel until the full number of the Gentiles come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I 
take away their sins. Reminded me of Zechariah 3.9. See the stone I have set in front of Yeshua. There are seven eyes on one stone and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. And to Jeremiah, in those days at that time declares the Lord, search will be made for Israel's guilt, but there will be none. And for the sins of Judah, but none will be found, for I will forgive the remnant I spare. As regards the gospel, says Paul, they, the Jews, are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. God gives a gift and he does not take it back. God will not lie. God is always true to his word and true to his promises. We know that from Titus, God cannot lie. And from Hebrews 6, it is impossible for God to lie. The Jews are beloved. They are elected for the sake of their forefathers and the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. Paul goes on in verse 30, just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of the Jews' disobedience. So they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you Gentiles, they also may receive mercy. For God has consigned all men to disobedience so that he may have mercy upon all. It's just an opposite. It's just a reversal. It's, it's, an, it's absolutely just mind-blowing to sit and ponder and think about. I love this chapter this week. Paul's final doxology. Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things and to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. How long will you go limping after two opinions? The last idea here on Mount Carmel. I told you to remember that little cloud. I see the cloud, the size of a man's hand. Rain was coming as God had promised Elijah. It would relieve a very long drought. That little little tiny white cloud the size of a man's hand. The ancient church understood that little cloud without blemish as a prefiguration, a type of Mary, the virgin mother of God, who would relieve a longer drought. In the same way, the cloud rose up out of the sea without any of the sea's impurities. Mary rose from among the human race without any stain of original sin. Her son, Jesus, was to be the long-expected Savior, the Messiah, the one promised to Adam in Genesis 3, 6, and to Abraham, and to Moses, and to Elijah. The long drought can be seen as the separation of the human race from the Trinity and from eternal life. A great drought after the fall of mankind waiting for a Savior. And the little cloud is the stainless immaculate conception of Mary that we will celebrate in a few days on December 8th, the solemnity of the immaculate conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Mary, when she appeared to St. Bernadette Subaru in Lourdes, France in 1858, called herself that title, I am the Immaculate Conception. Conceived without sin, the little cloud was a sign that the Messiah was coming and was near to end the drought of all humanity. It was about to come to an end. How long will you go limping after two opinions? Who is Jesus to you? Is he the Lord and Savior? Is he the Messiah? Is he the one on the throne? Is he at the center of your life? 
How long will you go limping between two opinions? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise and thank you for St. Paul. We thank you that we got grafted onto this beautiful olive tree. We praise you for that. We stand in awe of that. We thank you, Lord God. And we pray for all our Jewish brothers and sisters that they may come back onto this tree and that all people could come onto this tree and be grafted in to this tree of life that is you. Amen. That was part two of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 11, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit seekingtruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.